Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're doing well, staying healthy, happy, and safe. There is a great deal to unpack today, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Scott Goodson, the author of Activate Brand Purpose and founder and CEO of advertising and marketing agency Strawberry Frog. He zooms in from New York City to talk about purpose-driven companies and why consumers care about what a company stands for and what their values might be. That's a little bit later on. First, though, the Outlaw Ocean Project is a new seven-part true crime podcast that exposes criminal activities that take place on the world's high seas. It's hosted by my guest, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ian Urbina, who began the project as a series in the New York Times, where he was a staff writer. Between the articles, a book on the subject, and now the podcast, the journey has taken more than four years, spanning 40 cities and every continent and over 12,000 nautical miles across five oceans and 20 other seas. In this fascinating and very dynamic podcast, Urbina explores a gritty and lawless realm. It's populated by traffickers and smugglers, pirates and mercenaries, wreck thieves and repo men, sea-bound abortion providers, clandestine oil dumpers, shackled slaves, and cast adrift stowaways. I've seen a lot of things in my years as an investigative reporter, but nothing quite like this. It's a video I got from one of my sources. It shows the captain of a large commercial fishing boat ordering his crew to shoot and kill several men treading water. Police have asked Interpol to help them unravel the mystery surrounding what appears to be the brutal murder of four men at sea. My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. The Outlaw Ocean is brought to you by CBC Podcasts and the LA Times. You can learn more about the Outlaw Ocean Project, a nonprofit journalism organization that produces investigative stories about human rights, at theoutlawocean.com. Journalist Ian Urbina joined me via Zoom. Journalistically, it started in 2014. I was on staff at the New York Times for 17 years, and I sort of had a fork in the road where I had to choose a new investigative, you know, topic. Um, but the truth of it is, um, it's the interest in this space started, you know, a couple decades earlier when I was in grad school as an anthropologist, and I took a little bit of a leave of absence from my dissertation and went and worked on a ship that was anchored in Singapore. Mm. And that was my first exposure to this funky world of, you know, 50 million people who work at sea and just um, that captivated my imagination. And so I carried that interest uh, into my time at the New York Times. What did you learn in that first brush with this kind of work? Really that there is this watery two-thirds of the planet where 50 million people work and to the rest of us landlubbers, it's relatively invisible and removed and it's sort of a parallel universe. And that universe anthropologically has a lot of things that make it distinct, you know, its own language and lore, you know, its own relationship with time and space, um, its own hierarchy, its own humor, superstitions, and indeed crime, you know. And if you think of it almost as though you, you know, discovered some tribe in the middle of the Amazon that had been untouched by the outside for you know, time immemorial, um, that's, um, 
what I felt like I had stumbled across journalistically, you know, these workers that live a very different lifestyle. And, and um, I rarely had ever heard from them or about them in journalism. And why is it, do you think that this hasn't been this, the subject of thousands of other podcasts and books and things? It's such a, a huge part of our world. And yet uh, it seems to go unnoticed in a lot of ways. Not to, aggrandize our shared profession of journalism. But I do think that journalism is often the first exposure that the global public mm. has to a topic. And the journalism of this space is very difficult. It's it's all the things that our current profession is moving away from. It's costly, it's international, it's slow, um, it's complicated, you know, which means it needs more space to breathe from an explanatory point of view, longer stories, not shorter, you know? And so for all those reasons, it's just sheer remove. The, the journalism is very limited. It's hard to get out there. It's a very insular community um, to break in culturally takes a little bit more work than if you're trying to, you know, interview coal workers or truck mm -hmm. drivers or another workforce. So for all these reasons, it's very removed, even though, like you said, it's extremely essential to, how the rest of us live. You're listening to Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Ian Urbina on The Richard Krauss Show. His podcast, The Outlaw Ocean Project, is available on CBC Podcasts and the LA Times Podcasts. And how did you break in? So you talk about your time in Singapore, uh, but more recently, how did you begin the story? How did you uh, insinuate yourself into this culture? Well, I think if you first step back and ponder the the place and the people we're talking about it's it's best to bear in mind the best metaphor i have is it is these seafarers and fishers fishers are fishing workers yeah. and seafarers are merchant marine are a diaspora and transient tribe right so they're spread out all over the place and they move around and so you can't really go to one place that one village in the amazon and sort of lock them down and get the story you have to go to all sorts of different places so that it adds up to an overall picture so the story the reporting began 2014 with a lot of that you know a lot of trips to distinct places where there were distinct issues playing out that i was very interested in and then once i got to that region whether it was antarctica or songkla thailand or you know, uh, Ghana, Africa, you know, I then needed to figure out the logistics of, okay, now I'm here on the coast. How do I get out into the space onto these vessels? And that, you know, took logistical, you know, diplomacy and patience and logistics. And there was a great deal of lawlessness that happens uh, on the seas. And I would imagine that it's kind of an insular uh, culture that perpetrates that. How did you break into that or how did you find out about that and learn about that in a in an up close and personal way it's hard to uh, just to just take one step back i think it's hard to assess whether there's a large amount of lawlessness because it's so hard to have data on dark mm. economies you know but um so what i can say with confidence is that one thing that's very different about crime and misbehavior offshore compared to onshore is that when things bad happen onshore, there more often than not is a method of handling them. The laws are enforced. There's police, there's judicial systems, et cetera. There, there are spot checks by unions and lawyers. And there's a whole kind of set of circumstances on land to make illegality accountable. Offshore, 
not so much, right? There are laws written, they're often murky, there's very little enforcement, there are no cops out on the high seas. And even when law, when crime is discovered, be it dumping of oil or shackling of workers or murder on camera or illegal fishing, what have you, arms trafficking, even when you do find out about it, what you do with that information is not an easy question to answer. Mm -hmm. And how I found out about it was initially a taste by just spending a lot of time talking with folks onshore in Singapore back, you know, decades ago and hearing about things they had encountered. And then um, when I started to research, okay, I want to do a story about repo men who steal ships at sea. I want to do a story about abortion providing at sea. I want to do a story about vigilante conservationists who take the law into their own hands and, and ram and chase scoff law, you know, poachers. I want to do these separate stories because I've heard of these things to exist. Now, how can I get into them? And that just is sort of finding out, okay, who was the workforce? How do I get their trust? And then how do I talk my way onto these vessels? And how do I strike deals ultimately to be allowed to safely stay there? And often those deals entail, look, you can be on a captain saying you can be on my vessel, but you can't name the vessel and you can't name me. Mm -hmm. But you can talk to my crew and find out what the real world out here is like. Does a great deal of this lawlessness that that you talk about when you're at sea, does it stem from poverty? Where does it come from? What it, Or is it just it's a far enough removed part of the world that uh, the, the rules just don't apply as they do on, on dry land. I mean, all of the above, I think one is the Nate, the geography and nature of the space being so remote. And, um, and that um, if you want to do bad, you have the confidence to know that you can probably get away with it. Right. And so um, some people take advantage of that. I think the second big factor is, the abuses that often occur are aimed at um, victims that don't have power. So one victim is the environment itself. You know, marine life doesn't have a lobby, a lawyer, you know, and so robbing and they're not particularly cuddly, cuddly poster friendly, you know, kind of endearing creatures. And so there isn't a strong um brand around them that people will get upset when bad things are done to the marine environment. And then the workers who are on these vessels where these sorts of crimes happen are typically the weakest, um, from a political power point of view, people on the planet. So these are undocumented, developing world, often non-literate, um, trafficked you know, folks who don't even often speak the language of their officers and captain on a vessel that's flagged by some other country in waters where no government really has jurisdiction and they're in transit, you know, so those folks are expendable from the perspective of someone who wants to do harm. Um, and that's a big reason why these crimes go unpunished because they're targeting people that when your brother, father, son disappears or loses his arm or never gets paid, like there's not a whole lot he can do about it or you can do about it. Cause you're from a tiny village in, in the Philippines or Indonesia or West Africa and you don't have access to power to raise a stink. And how are these human rights abuses linked with environmental abuses? We've touched on that just a little bit here, uh, but tell me about the the strong link between the two. I think if you um, view the the issue through the lens of hidden costs, through the metaphor of the problem of hidden costs, and you think about um, 
here is a space. It's there's an extractive industry called fishing. Um, it takes stuff out of the space and monetizes it. Um, and it's trying to break even or make profit. Mm. And um, the global economy has, you know, really increased um, efficiencies and your ability to sell your product anywhere on the planet. Um, and it's decentralized responsibility as well. So it's insulated those who make the most profit from those who are engaged on the front lines and the most harm, right? So that's what globalization has done. It's given us cheaper prices for goods faster, but it's also made it very tough to um, pin a crime on the true beneficiary, um, not just the culprit. Uh, so for all these reasons, I think um, the connection between environmental and human rights is as the the you know the world's fish stocks are disappearing. Ninety percent of all stocks are at the edge or beyond collapse, and so competition for what's left is more intense. Fish vessel fishing vessels go much further from shore because most of the easy fish near shore have been disappeared, and so they have to go way far out to sea to catch a bare minimum to break even, and so that means fuel and labor costs go up. And so they cut corners. And the way to cut corners is to do illegal stuff. Use human slaves. Don't pay them. Abuse them. Make them work too long. Go raid waters where you're not allowed to be. These are all efficiencies. These are hidden costs. And they're aimed at trying to break even or make a profit in a globalized economy. And that's the connection. Is it just that these products that are the result of a lot of these illegal fishing activities, that they're much cheaper. And that's why you think consumers are willing to ignore the abuses uh, that are endemic in the industry? No, I think it's back to the original point, which is that most of the public is not aware. There's not enough right. journalism and not enough advocacy and not enough government policy focused on this and not enough big you know, NGOs with big budgets focused on this. And so it's, it's an invisible problem. If you think back in time, think about you know, sweatshop garment or think about dolphin-free mm. tuna or think about um, uh, fair trade coffee you know, blood diamonds, like these are all supply chain moments when a specific product line had a reckoning where bad stuff was happening in that supply chain. Usually journalists and NGOs and lawyers came together, raised the stink. Companies realized their brand was taking a hit and they needed to do something about it because the wide public knew about it and was, was embarrassed to be buying that stuff and moving away from it. And, and the market shifted and co corporate players shifted and governments shifted. Seafood hasn't had that moment yet. I think we're heading there, but seafood um, has a ways to go. You're listening to Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Ian Urbina on The Richard Krause Show. His podcast, The Outlaw Ocean, is available on CBC Podcasts and the LA Times Podcasts. You are a journalist. You are uh, a witness to some of these abuses and, and the illegality of it all. How do you respond to that? You can't interfere because then you're changing the story. But tell me a little bit about how you feel day to day while you're out there. It's a fine line. I mean, I, I do think that um, uh, sometimes you have to enter the story, mm. you know, and there are times in the reporting in the last decade when um, people's lives, myself included, possibly, you know, seemed to be at stake. And I had to make a decision, you know, um, for the well-being of those around us. And I would sooner give up my credentials as a journalist than give up my credentials as a human. So like, I try to keep track of that. And if a moment, you know, kind of forces me to think along those, you know, you know, 
um, one or the other lines. And I'm always going to go with what has to be done so that I'm not merely bearing witness. I'm not a fundamentalist when it comes to the journalistic tenant, and nor do I actually agree with its extreme version of you always stay out, even if you're witnessing a murder in front of you. I don't agree with that personally. And, but I do keep a, the, the, the occasions don't come up that often when I have to make that call. And, Mm. and, and more often they're in the middle ground where you're witnessing atrocities, but not life or death atrocities. And even if you witness a near uh, awful stuff, you have to question, okay, what if I were to do something right now and take off my journalist hat, would I be able to help the situation now by direct intervention or would I be better off by possibly some subsequent intervention, but, you know, between direct and now versus wait six months and my story comes out something in the middle ground, which is like, I'm leaving this scene. I'm going to maintain my journalistic protocol but I'm also going to contact law enforcement and say, hey, look, I got three months before my story comes out, but you need to know this is happening and you guys might want to get on that. And I personally feel like the my ethics dictate that I shouldn't wait till my story. That feels very mm-hmm. exploitative and self-interested, but I, I do um, try to hand over my journalism when it feels like the ethical thing to do sooner rather than later. And what do you think has been the result of the book and now the podcast and the reporting that you've done? It's hard to measure. Like if you think of outcomes as qualitative and quantitative, you know, a lot of people consume it and maybe that journalistically raises fluency and a sense of urgency and an awareness. And that's good. Hard to measure all those dots, right? You know, I know that there's larger and larger numbers of folks, thankfully, consuming the reporting we're doing. Um, whether it changes their mind, whether it raises fluency. I think so. I see it in small ways. Eight years ago, venues, large journalism outlets that didn't, that weren't covering this and didn't really know what to make of these stories now have units just on it. The Guardian, for example, AP just hired up Ocean Reporters. I'm not saying that's all attributable. Sorry about that. Um, to me uh, and our reporting, but I do think um, the AP and Al Jazeera and The Guardian, a bunch of places have done sustained reporting and it's spreading the word and you're seeing a lot more of these stories in major publications. And then on the more opposite end, the qualitative and single individual level or single policy level, we've seen huge impact, you know, you know arrest of, we did an eight year investigation of a murder caught on camera as part of the podcast series. That captain was ultimately arrested and sentenced to 26 years. I think that's in part due to the reporting we did um, a, you know, a, a Thai, excuse me, a Cambodian uh, a man who was shackled by the neck that I profiled in the sea slavery story. He was rescued. His captain was prosecuted. That guy, Lang Long, was given mental health services and job training and a place to stay by the Thai government. So you see individual real impact, and then you see broader, murky, but seemingly real impact. As well. You've talked about how it has affected journalism and, and some of the subjects of your stories. How did this past eight years affect you? I mean, maybe my family is better to answer that. <laughs> they probably would say <laughs> grumpier and and uh, and um, uh, older than my actual number indicates. Um, uh, but I think it affected me in that it captured me. You know, I had a good job, a staff position for 17 years at the Times. And, you know, I had to switch investigative topics every two years or so. And this topic captured my heart and mind. And I decided to leave the Times. So 
on a professional point of view, um, it really captured me. I think um, it also, in a weird, maybe negative feedback loop, um, the the more I see, especially the darker the stuff I see, the more motivated and more driven I become out of maybe some sense of guilt about, wow, now you know, and you have to work that much harder to try to do something in your own way about it all. And my own way is journalism, you know? And so I, I find myself, the more I'm exposed, the harder I work. And that may not be a sustainable <laughs> chart, um, but for now it, it does keep me going. Um, each time I come back from a trip, I feel even more committed to the work. And let's talk about the podcast and the sense that it is immersive storytelling. Uh, it's a powerful medium. Do you feel that this is the next logical step for your journalism to be able to get the story out in what is such a visceral way? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have huge respect for podcasts in general and radio, you know, audio reporters um, have at their disposal a method of engaging people that I think in some weird way, even compared to better writers than I am, um, we can't really do what audio folks do for, I think, psychological reasons. You know, I think um, being able to listen to something just grabs your imagination and your heart um, more effectively than reading it. And every reporting at sea mission I take, I always have a videographer with me. Do the sea captains or whoever it is that you're arranging this through, don't they ever say, hey, wait a minute, we're out here breaking the law. You can't bring a, a camera on board. It's, I, I marvel 35 years into this profession, how willing people are to talk if you approach them the right way. If they, mm -hmm. I think most people are very smart and, you know, especially folks in working class contexts where they have to size people up. They have to have emotional intelligence and be able to read people. They may not be book smart, but they probably are smarter than, you know, I am um, when it comes to reading people and the mm. scene. And so they make a quick assessment of you and you have to know that they're doing that because it will just determine whether you get on board or not. And, you know, I have certain things I try to do very proactively initially in terms of just being very nakedly transparent about um, what I do and don't know, but also um, in the do know is show I do have some fluency about their perspective, their experience, their world, that's this work so that they realize I'm not a total outsider. Um, and, I, and their perspective is key because often that means like, okay, why would you, a Thai captain in your own head, justify beating your crew? Okay. Well, I think like, let me have a stab at that. I think having spent, you know, you know, days and hours of, with, with these very captains have heard a common theme, which is we're deathly afraid of mutiny. And we have to lay down the law very proactively initially. And we do that in a performative way. I mean, that's not how they word it, but that's what I've heard. And that isn't a justification. It doesn't make it right, but it makes it more understandable. Well, that sort of in knowledge is key at that very moment when I'm trying to get myself on board. Um, because I can talk to captains in a way that hit certain notes that make them aware that I'm aware of what their concerns are. And that often is just a little bit I need to get them to invite me on. And then they size me up, you know, is this guy going to obey when I say you're not allowed to name me? And that's just the je ne sais quoi. They, you know, you just have to convey a certain way. 
Well, Ian, thank you very much for this. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ian Urbina on The Richard Krause Show. His podcast, The Outlaw Ocean, is available on CBC Podcasts and the LA Times Podcasts. You can learn more about The Outlaw Ocean Project, a nonprofit journalism organization that produces investigative stories about human rights at theoutlawocean.com. And now let's move on to something completely different. Did you know that a recent study proved that more than 87% of consumers would purchase a product because a company advocated for an issue they cared about, and more than two-thirds would refuse to do so if the company supported an issue that was contrary to their beliefs? That is one of the things you'll learn about in my next guest's new book, Activate Brand Purpose, How to Harness the Power of Movements to Transform Your Company is the book. And Scott Goodson is the author. He's also the founder and CEO of advertising and marketing agency Strawberry Frog. And he's my guest who joined me via Zoom from New York City. I think in the last few years, people start to realize that a lot of the problems we're seeing, whether it's bad hurricanes coming into eastern Canada or excessively hot summers, or protests in the street, that some of these issues that we see in our television screens are caused by capitalism, by business. And that uh, if business starts to think differently about their engagement with the world, that perhaps some of these problems won't be as bad as they are. So we, as a result, consumers started to feel the need to check up on our companies, the companies we work for and the companies that we buy from in order to make sure that they're being good stewards of the world we live in. So I think that's really the main reason. And as a result of that, now when you go to your buddy's next door for a pool party, you check out what type of potato chip he's eating and whether that potato chip is raised in such a way as it's additive to the world and not the opposite, not poisoning you. And at what point uh, does branding enter into this? Because you can get a bad reputation. How easy, I guess the question is, how easy is it to rehabilitate a brand uh, once they've been associated with something that is unsavory or not good for the planet? I think we're moving into an era where purpose uh, actually eclipses brand. I think the era that we grew up in where brand connected with popular culture or sports, mm-hmm. and as a result, they were cool, is now a, turning into a new era where we want to buy brands or work for brands that are actually doing, you know, proving to be doing positive things to our communities, to our country, to our family, to our friends. Um, and those are the companies that we're prepared to work for. I think the history obviously has a has a role, and there are a lot of companies that are responsible for some of the challenges we face in the world. Um, So I don't think, you know, obviously some companies are doing worse than others, but I think in general, everybody's looking at the world and saying capitalism has gotten us so far, but now we need to reimagine capitalism in a way where we're actually not, as I said, you know, creating a world that we can't live anymore in a healthy way. And by the way, it's not just about the planet. It's about like having jobs for our children and education. Uh, making sure that everybody has a quality of life, has uh, enough money to to you know live a, a healthy life with their family. You know, financial stress is a huge mental health issue. 
uh, pernicious debt causes a lot of people these days to have serious mental health issues. So it's about all of these potent, all these issues that in the past we just shrugged and said, ah, that's life, but it's not life. And what role does social media play in this? And what role has it played in this? Is Are, are the two connected? Are we more aware of brands and the inner workings of brands because of social media? Absolutely. We're, we're aware of everything. <laughs> many of which, many of the issues are um, untrue. Yeah. You know, it's a, the social media is a, is certainly not a place of fact. It's a place of great storytelling. And so I'm sure there's information that is spread that's accurate. There's a lot of disinformation that's spread. But I think the net effect of social media is that we are a lot more in tune with what's going on in all corners of our world mm -hmm. and perhaps a little more suspicious of those big corporations and probably all those, let's say, all those entities or those individuals that in the past that we used to trust. You know, if you remember when we were younger, we said that oh, we trust the editor in chief of Vogue magazine to determine the you know, where fashion is. Well, that's not the case anymore. You can go on any any um, social media and like Instagram and there's 25,000 highly attuned fashionistas that give you up-to-date fashion advice. Um, so like that, I think, and sorry, as a result of that, we don't trust those individuals that we did in the past, the CEOs of companies, the editors of, of big newspapers, the um, journalists perhaps on, on national television shows. So we're, we're, we're living in a world of where trust is evaporating, unfortunately. So to get the trust back, companies have to do more in order to demonstrate through action that they're actually driving some form of positive change for all of us. And is that what movement thinking is, which is one of the things that you detail in your book, Activate Brand Purpose? Movement thinking is basically, you know, years ago when I was um, working on brands like Ericsson, which was at the time the world's leading mobile phone company, or even when we were helping to build Google at the beginning, um, or the launch of, uh, of um, Smart Car, for example, we use those as ways of, of launching a movement rather than trying to teach people about a purpose. And the reason is because purpose can be very theoretical. It's like going to a university class where the teacher drones on and you kind of fall asleep because it's a bit too heavy. And what I think I, we realized years ago was that people are really passionate about movements. They grew up, you know, I grew up in Montreal. My mother was very passionate um, in the women's movement in the 1970s in Canada. So I grew up with a mom that was very engaged and I realized what a movement was. I think all of us grew up in that, uh, with that as a, as a context. So the idea of applying the principles of movement as a way to organize people, to mobilize people is a really powerful framework for company leaders to engage, galvanize their employees, to activate their purpose, or to mobilize consumers to achieve some form of positive change. So in today's world, it's not enough to have a purpose. A lot of CEOs of companies have a purpose. I call them toothless. They're toothless. They don't do anything. There's kind of a nice poster on a wall with two guys standing on the top of a mountain and say, what's your purpose? <laughs> Nobody, you know, that's all BS. Yeah. It's all about how do you activate that in such a way that you're driving through your actions, your positive change. 
And I think everybody's sitting around waiting for companies to not deliver on what they're talking about. You're listening to Scott Goodson on The Richard Krause Show. His new book, Activate Brand Purpose, How to Harness the Power of Movements to Transform Your Company, is available now wherever fine books are sold. And that's why you have cancel culture, because people sort of shrug and say, what are you talking about? You guys said you were going to care about helping people have a higher quality of life or, or equal pay for men and women or or be able to have financial confidence in their lives. And yet you're not doing anything. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing? You're not doing anything. You're just talking. And so that is the difference, I guess, between um, selling to a consumer, simply selling to a consumer and engaging them. You want them to be engaged in your uh, your, your goals and uh, the, the wishes of your company in, in terms of having a higher purpose than just selling a new widget to a consumer. Absolutely, 100%. And, you know, four years ago, we wanted to prove that that was accurate and not just as a theory. So we did the world's first and largest empirical study of purpose-driven companies. Mm. And we went out to just in the United States. So I'm sure there's some um, ways to, to look at the Canadian market in some respect from what I'm about to say. But only in the U.S. we looked at 20,000 um, consumers and many thousands of employees and we wanted to find out does purpose matter you know does having a higher purpose in other words having some higher purpose other than making money does that actually matter to these people and what we found out was in fact it does a majority of consumers said they are significantly more willing to buy from a company if it has a purpose and they're activating it and then we went to the employees and in 2023, the most recent uh, survey, we saw that 76% of all senior executives answered that they thought their purpose was very well activated and that everybody in the organization was very inspired and by that purpose. And then as we went down through the organizations, when we got to the middle management, we found out that, surprise, surprise, there's a purpose gap. Only 44% of middle managers thought the purpose was activated and in fact was something that was driving a cultural change in the organization or behavioral change. And if we went even further down to people on the front line, it was around 20%. So what we're seeing is in consumers, significant, yes, we are willing to buy from companies that, have, that demonstrate that they're activating their purpose and people on the inside the middle management down through the frontline workers are saying, yes, we want to work for an organization. We're willing to work for an organization that activates their purpose. A few years back, if you remember the Canadian brand Megablocks, mm. it was the competitor to Lego. And we worked with Megablocks before it was bought by Mattel. And we developed a purpose for the brand, which was called Creativity to the Rescue. And it was all about how Megablocks really took a stand for for inspiring creativity with children because the world is full of electronic devices and the electronic devices are robbing the kids of their innate imagination. And the role, the purpose of, of this company, of, of Megablocks is to inspire this great, this great creativity, which by the way, leads to people who have great imaginations who can help solve the world's big mm -hmm. problems. So there you have a direct connection between what they do and the, this bigger idea that is relevant to a lot of parents out there who are worried that their kids are busy on iPhones and other types of electronic 
devices and not stimulating their creativity. That was Scott Goodson on The Richard Krauss Show. His book, Activate Brand Purpose, How to Harness the Power of Movements to Transform Your Company, is available now wherever fine books are sold. A big thanks to Scott for stopping by. Also, a big thanks to journalist Ian Urbina. His podcast, The Outlaw Ocean, is available on CBC Podcasts and the LA Times Podcasts. Murder, slavery, gun running, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. All hidden from view. Until now. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon.